Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know I have a free on-demand masterclass called Five Steps to Writing a Novel Without Letting Perfectionism or Procrastination Get in the Way. In this free training, I cover things like where perfectionism comes from, how it's directly linked to procrastination, and what you can do right now to start making real progress with your writing. I also talk about the problem with popular plotting methods and how they can do more harm than good, especially if you're brand new to writing. And last but certainly not least, I share some of the most common mistakes I see writers make so you can avoid them and make this the year you finish your novel. If this sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up for free at savannagilbo.com forward slash training. One more time, that's savannagilbo.com forward slash training to get your hands on this free masterclass. You'll also want to consider what they're expecting to happen or what they're hoping will happen in this scene. So really just everything going on in their mind and in their heart. And this is important to establish at the beginning of each scene because it's going to help contextualize everything that happens in the rest of the scene. It's also going to help you write realistic behavior because you'll better understand what's fueling and motivating your character as they navigate the external events of the scene. Welcome to the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast. My name is Savannah Gilbo, and I'm here to help you write a story that works. I want to prove to you that writing a novel doesn't have to be overwhelming. So each week, I'll bring you a brand new episode with simple, actionable, and step-by-step strategies that you can implement in your writing right away. So whether you're brand new to writing or more of a seasoned author looking to improve your craft, this podcast is for you. So pick up a pen and let's get started. In today's episode, we're going to do something a little fun and a little different. Since we're nearing the end of 2022, I thought it could be fun to continue with last week's theme of lessons learned over the last 12 months. I hope some of the lessons that you've learned this year have come from this podcast, and I hope you walked away each week with a new strategy to implement or a new idea to explore, and I hope you're closer to accomplishing all of your big, beautiful writing goals as well. So as we inch our way closer to counting down until the ball drops, I wanted to count down some of the best clips from the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast in 2022. You're going to hear clips from the top 10 most listened to episodes, so I know this episode is going to be full of good stuff. And without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in, starting with tip number 10. And this tip comes from episode number 54, how to test your story idea before you start writing. In this episode, I walk through two different exercises that will help you make sure your story idea is fleshed out enough, or if it's not, these exercises will help shine a light on any areas of your story that still need work. So let's check out the clip. When you're considering your story idea, I want you to answer these three questions. Do you know what your protagonist wants and why? Do you know what kind of conflict your protagonist will face? And do you know what's at stake for your protagonist if they succeed or fail? And if you don't know the answer to these questions, I suggest looking to your genre for clues. So if you know that you're writing an action story, then the genre framework tells you that A, your protagonist wants to defeat the antagonist to save lives, most likely including their own life. B, your protagonist will face specific and dangerous conflict thrown in their path by the antagonist. And C, their life and the lives of others are at stake if they don't successfully stop the antagonist. So we have the who, the what, and the why right there in our genre framework. And this is why I really like doing this exercise first whenever I have a new idea, because it helps develop your idea's narrative potential. 
A lot of writers I work with have not done this exercise to think through the central conflict of their story. So they might know some stuff about their protagonist, or they might have some ideas for scenes, but they haven't done the work of fleshing out the conflict and or their antagonist. So by doing this exercise, it's easy to see where and why an idea is falling flat. And to me, if an idea does fall flat in this one to two sentence summary, that never means that the idea is terrible or that the story shouldn't be written. It just means there's a little more work to do to flesh things out before you start writing. And as a little bonus tip to that tip, I just want to say that it doesn't have to feel like the most exciting idea at this stage, but you should at least be able to see a story starting to take shape. So do you see conflict? Do you see a protagonist with agency that you can imagine? Does the story interest you? Do you think it has commercial potential? You know, all these things. So it doesn't have to be perfect. We're not aiming for perfection. We just want to make sure that the key ingredients you need to write a fully fleshed out story are present. So that's tip number 10. You want to test out your story idea before you spend all of your time writing 60, 70, 80, 90,000 words, whatever it ends up being. Tip number nine comes from episode number 55, three tips for writing a first draft in 90 days. And in this episode, I give some tips and strategies for how to write a first draft in three months if that is your goal. It certainly doesn't have to be your goal, but some people do want to do this. And in this clip, I talk about how outlining can help you write a draft in as little as 90 days. So let's take a listen. I know some of you don't like to outline, so that's totally fine if you're in that camp. But I will say that every single writer I've worked with who doesn't like outlining usually comes around to the value of outlining after they see how much time and energy an outline can save. And not only that, but there really is a way to make the outlining process feel as fun and creative as writing is. One of the ways to do this is to think about your outline as your draft zero. So the draft before your first draft, but in summary form. And I know this advice won't work for everyone, but maybe give it a try if you're normally not into outlining, but also not exactly happy with the progress you're currently making. And two things here. Once you have a full scene-by-scene outline, I want you to go back through it and pressure test it. So look for plot holes, inconsistencies in logic, pacing that feels too fast or too slow, characters who appear but then go missing in the second half of the book, subplots that appear out of nowhere in Act 3, and things like that. Then I also want you to go and look at each one of your scenes and look for the point of view character's goal, the conflict they face, and the decision that they face in every single one of your scenes. Doing this work up front will make a huge difference in the quality of your first draft. And this is the exact same process I teach in my notes to novel class. And most of the time, no matter how someone felt at the onset of this lesson, most of the time they're really happy to have gone through this step and to have done this hard work once they're done. It is seriously a game changer if you're open to it. So after that, once you feel good about your outline, it's time to start writing. So this is where the 90-day clock starts ticking. And remember, if you're aiming for 80,000 words in your first draft, this means you'll need to write about 6,000 words per week. But now, if you've fleshed out your outline and pressure tested your outline, it should be so much easier to sit down and write every day. And think about it like this. When you have little pockets of time, like 30 minutes here, 30 minutes there, you don't have to spend half of that time thinking about what you need to write. It will all be there on your scene-by-scene roadmap already. 
I love that tip because personally, I cannot imagine writing without an outline. So if you are a pantser or a plotter, no matter where you fall on that spectrum, I highly encourage you to at least give outlining a try just to see if you can find some way to outline a story that works for you, even if it's not your natural inclination to start there. So that's tip number nine. I suggest creating a scene-by-scene roadmap for your entire story before you start writing your draft. Okay, moving on to tip number eight. This one comes from episode number 61, where Abigail K. Perry and I analyzed the first chapter of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. In this clip, we talk about pacing and structure, specifically what happens when the inciting incident of your story comes too late. We also talk about scene length and how scenes relate to chapters and other fun things like that. So let's go ahead and dive right into the clip. I've seen a pattern. I don't know if you've seen this at all, Savannah, but usually if you don't have an inciting incident by chapter three in your writing, your pace is probably off. I've noticed a little bit like that. Maybe, I mean, I could be wrong with that, but that's what I've noticed. It tends to be that if you haven't had some sort of in the really the inciting instant of the story by chapter three, I feel like it gets a little bit slow for me. But that might be my personal. That's funny because in theory, you could have three very bloated chapters and you're not getting to the inciting incident until like 20,000 words, Mm -hmm. which is not ideal either. So let's what I like to say is like it's usually around 10 to 12 percent of your entire manuscript. Mm-hmm. It's usually halfway in your beginning section of your story. If the beginning is 20 to 25 percent, 10 to 12 percent is halfway there. And yeah, the reason I always like to think about like you see those maps of plots where it's like we build up to something and then we kind of go down, build up to something and then go down. That first peak is usually your inciting incident. Yeah. So it's like we need to be building to keep that pacing intention because Yeah. If you don't have it, whether it's chapter three or whatever that 10 to 12% mark, why are they reading your book? You will stop. And if you're doing traditional publishing, I've seen a lot of agents say, okay, give me the first three chapters before they say, give me the full. So if you don't get it by chapter three, it's out, right? It's easy to put it down. So just kind of as an FYI type of thing. Now, what else is really interesting about that is that you're talking about 10 to 12%. And I think it's great that you're pulling that out. We've talked about in the past about how the ideal scene length is around 2,000 to 2,500 words. It's called the potato chip scene length. Mm-hmm. It's like that place where readers get to the end of the chapter and, oh, can I read one more? Do I have time for one more? Rowling in these earlier books hasn't always been 2,500 words per scene. Sometimes they've been a little bit longer. So how, when you're thinking about, I guess, like just to kind of ask you a question, Savannah, when you're helping your clients with this idea of what is the perfect word count, do you think that people get caught up in the word count and you focus on percentages or like do you focus on events? How do you help them in restructuring yeah. about what really matters versus the ideal, whatever it is? I find that most writers think in chapters and that's kind of it. So they're just like, I need to write a chapter. A lot of chapters can be like 3,000 to 4,000 words. So mm-hmm. Because they don't know any better, they end up just writing three to 4,000 words without any scenes in there or anything. So I like to strip all that away and just say, let's write a scene with Mm -hmm. the structure we talked about Mm -hmm. and try to keep it somewhere between under 3,000. Even if you're at 3,000, 3,500 on your first draft, it's okay. You can strip things out later once you know what's happening in your story Mm -hmm. and what's important and what's not. But yeah, I find you cannot think about chapters at the same time you're writing scenes. It's just too much. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I love a good conversation about Harry Potter. So if you guys haven't heard these episodes where we take a deep dive into the first chapter of all seven Harry Potter books, and if you're a Harry Potter fan, I highly recommend going to check those out. 
Moving on to tip number seven, and this one comes from episode number 74, which is all about when you should write in scene versus when you should write in summary. And this is a great episode to listen to if you'd like a deeper understanding of what a scene actually is. The clip I'm going to share includes some general guidelines for what types of things need to be written in scene versus in summary. So let's just dive right in, shall we? Not everything that happens in a story needs to be dramatized in a full-blown scene. The narrative that you're writing would become long, flat, and boring if you did that. So here are some guidelines to help you determine which parts of your story should be written in scene versus which parts of your story should be written in summary. Keep in mind that these are not hard and fast rules, but rather they're just guidelines to help you write the best, most impactful story possible. So here they are. Scenes take place in real time, which means they are almost always more impactful than summary. Scenes immerse your readers into the story, so we want to dramatize the most important parts of your story for the best effect on readers. Basically, the more important the moment, the more likely it needs to be shown as a scene. Specifically, major turning points or the high points of your story should almost always be scenes. So think moments like the inciting incident, the midpoint, the key scenes of your genre, you know, things like that. Any moment that the story has been building and building and building up to should be a scene as well. So again, turning points, um, think the global climax of your story. If you're writing something like a romance, a first kiss, or a character's reuniting. Um, If you're writing, let's say, a fantasy and your character's learning how to wield magic, we definitely want to see them express everything they've learned on the page, you know, things like that. If you're working with multiple plot lines, all of the major events of the primary plot line should most likely be a scene. The less important plot line or the less important point of view, the more you can get away with summarizing important events or having those events happen off page. But if they are key events, you still want to be a little careful there. Essentially, if the moment significantly progresses the character arc, the plot, or the theme, then it really should be shown as a scene that unfolds in real time. I love that clip, and I think that episode was one of my favorites from this past year. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go check it out. It's episode number 74, and I will link to it in the show notes. Tip number six comes from episode number 63. Don't start a scene without these three things. And in this episode, I talk about the three contextual elements that you should include at the start of each one of your scenes. This is something many of the drafts I edit are missing, so I highly recommend listening to this episode. But in this clip, I talk about establishing your character's mental and emotional state. So let's take a listen. What are they thinking and feeling when the scene opens? Have they carried in their mental or emotional state from the last scene? Or has it been a little bit since the last scene and maybe now they have a different emotional or mental state? You'll also want to consider what they're expecting to happen or what they're hoping will happen in this scene. So really just everything going on in their mind and in their heart. And this is important to establish at the beginning of each scene because it's going to help contextualize everything that happens in the rest of the scene. It's also going to help you write realistic behavior because you'll better understand what's fueling and motivating your character as they navigate the external events of the scene. And in general, there are two main ways you can show your character's mental and emotional state. Number one, you can let readers into your protagonist's mind and show their thoughts and feelings about whatever is affecting them. Number two, you can let your protagonist's behavior and physical gestures give insight into their mental and emotional state. 
Coupled with your protagonist's thoughts and feelings, physical gestures can go a long way towards conveying how a character is feeling. But there are a few caveats to this. So first, you can't just tell readers that your character is upset. You need to show exactly why they're upset and what specific thoughts are triggering these feelings. Second, you'll want to avoid using generic gestures like sighing or having a character release a breath they didn't know they were holding, as well as repetitive gestures. So don't use the same gestures over and over if you can help it. And all of this is important because it helps you establish the stakes of the scene. So stakes are basically what your character stands to lose or gain within a scene or within a story. It's why what the protagonist wants is important to them. And you can always get to the stakes of a scene or a story by asking two questions. What does the protagonist think will happen if they succeed? So what do they stand to gain if they succeed? And then what does the protagonist fear will happen if they fail? So what do they stand to lose if they fail? And whatever your answer is, you're going to want to make it as specific as possible. So you don't want to say something like, my protagonist fears that they will feel failure or something that's abstract, like she will feel like she doesn't belong anywhere. You want to zero in on the specific mental image that the protagonist is picturing as their best and worst case scenarios. So really important. You want to be specific. And if you articulate a character's hopes and fears, the reader is going to understand why what's happening matters to the protagonist, and they're going to feel more invested in the outcome. It's also what makes things more satisfying if your protagonist ends up succeeding or more poignant if they fail, because now we understand what success or failure means to them specifically. That's a good tip, right? I love this episode because we got to talk through actual examples from Saba Tahir's An Ember in the Ashes. And I feel like it was so helpful to see a tip or strategy play out in a real life story. And this tip especially is super important because, like I said, establishing your character's emotional and mental state helps ground the reader at the very start of each scene. So keep that in mind and let's move on to tip number five. Tip number five comes from episode number 73, The Four Phases of Editing, How to Revise a Novel. And in this clip, I talk about the very first thing you should do once you finish your draft. I won't spoil it for you, so let's just dive right into the clip. Writers ask me all the time, what is the very first thing I should do now that I've finished a draft? And in most cases, they are wanting strategies or tips or, you know, steps that they can walk through, things like that. But my advice is to always just take a break. Taking time away from your draft is what will help you get distance from your story, and that will help you come back to it with more objective eyes. This is going to make your revisions a whole lot easier. And I know it will be a little bit painful to stop all this momentum, but trust me, it is the very best thing you can do. And then once you've taken time away from your draft, it's time to sit down and read through what you have. And yes, this will probably be a bit cringe-inducing, but hang in there. The key to this first step is to not make any changes to your manuscript as you read through it. And that's because you have to see the whole picture of your story and you have to remind yourself of everything that's already in your draft before you can revise with any sense of clarity. So try not to make any changes to your actual manuscript while you're reading through it. And if you know you're going to struggle with this part, you can print out your draft, you can export it to a PDF and read it on your computer or put it on your Kindle. You can also use a text-to-speech program like Natural Readers or the Read Aloud feature in Microsoft Word that will essentially read your draft to you. 
Basically, just do whatever you can to prevent yourself from editing as you read. Now, you might be wondering, what do I do if I come up with any notes or new ideas as I'm reading my draft? And here's the thing. If you want to take notes or jot down new ideas, go ahead. For some people, it's easy to take in the big sweep of their story and jot down notes, but for other people, it's not that easy and they prefer to read and then take notes. Do whatever is going to work best for you and don't try to change your process if, let's say, reading your draft and then taking notes is more of how you naturally work. Don't try to fit yourself into the other box if you already know what's going to work for you. Trust me on this because you'll end up saving time in the long run. And really, my point here is I just don't want you to waste your time making any changes in your actual manuscript just yet. This may feel counterintuitive, but this will save you time in the long run as well. I have to say, it's funny hearing this tip because I'd say 70% of the writers I work with don't take this advice because they're so eager to dive back into their drafts. And I'll admit, for some people, this totally works. Sometimes it's okay to dive back in if you know that's going to work for you. But again, if you're unsure or if you're feeling even the tiniest bit of burnout or lack of creative energy, please just take a break. I'm not kidding when I say that doing so could be one of the best decisions you make in the entire writing process. Okay, moving on to tip number four. This one comes from episode number 56, Five Reasons Why Readers Stop Reading a Book. And this one is fun because we all want our stories to be read, right? So let's go ahead and check out the clip. The first reason why a reader might stop reading a novel is because nothing meaningful happens in the opening pages. And what I mean by this is that a lot of writers use the beginning of a story to warm the reader up for what's coming next. So they'll put in a lot of backstory or exposition in the opening pages so that the reader knows everything there is to know about the characters or about the world before anything happens. And this is just not ideal. Imagine your favorite story and think about if the author did this to you. You might think all the backstory and exposition is cool and really fun, but you don't need to know it all before the story starts. So, for example, I love the world building in Harry Potter, but I don't need to know how many floors are in the Ministry of Magic or what flavors there are in Birdie Bot's Every Flavored Beans before I meet Harry on page one. That would just be too much information and it would be boring. So, what should you do instead if you have a problem like this in your draft? The first thing is you need to make sure that something compelling is happening from the very first page. You might have heard the advice to start with action or to start in media res, and all that's saying is the same thing. Start with something compelling that will pull readers into the story. But there's one caveat here. This doesn't mean to start with car chases or explosions or something super extreme like that. Rather, I want you to think in terms of a meaningful or impactful opening. And meaningful and impactful are subjective, right? So what's a meaningful and impactful event for your character? You can also ask, why does the story need to start today and not yesterday or tomorrow? Because you're looking for the moment that things start to change for your protagonist, even if they don't know it just yet. This is usually a good indicator of when your story should start. And then don't feel like you need to tell readers everything. Instead, just give them enough context to understand what's happening in the scene or the story present, but not much more. You can save all of that for a later scene or chapter. 
That's a good one, right? I love that episode. And I normally don't ever go back and listen to the episodes once they're published. But to make this roundup, I had to re-listen to the ones I'm including clips from. And this one about why readers might stop reading your book is a really good one. I kind of forgot how much I liked that one. So it was really fun to go back and listen to it. Definitely add that to your list of episodes to check out if you haven't heard it, especially if you're in the editing or querying phase, it will probably be super helpful. And speaking of querying, tip number three comes from episode number 58, which is all about how to avoid some of the biggest querying mistakes I see writers make. In this clip, I talk about what happens when a query letter is too vague, and this is something I see all the time. So let's check it out. The next mistake I see writers make when it comes to query letters is that they write a summary of their story that is super vague. So they'll use vague and nonspecific language, or they'll hint at things in a way that doesn't make sense to someone with no knowledge of the story. So for example, I read a query last week that said something like, when the protagonist goes to XYZ land, his powers will be tested. But that doesn't really tell us anything, so we can't imagine what that looks like or why this person's going to be tested or what being tested even means. So instead of doing something vague like that, the author could just tweak it and say, upon arriving in XYZ land, the protagonist will have to use every ounce of her telekinetic powers to save her sister from XYZ. So of course, fill in the specifics for XYZ. But I hope you can see that example is a little more specific, and it hints at the protagonist's goal and what's at stake. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the sole purpose of your query letter is to give agents and editors just enough information about your story so that they will want to read more. So at the very, very least, you need to include these things. Number one, a character that readers can care about. Number two, an indication of what that character wants and why. Number three, the conflict that gets in their way. And number four, what's at stake if they don't get what they want. If you're not clear about those four things in your query letter, it's most likely going to fall flat. And out of those four things, the one that I see left out the most is what's at stake. So if you're writing a query letter or if you've already written one, go double check that you've included what's at stake and that what's at stake is clear enough to somebody with no knowledge of your story. I know I'm biased, but I think this is such a good tip. And honestly, the advice to be specific and not vague is something that you can apply to all different types of things when it comes to writing. So what does your character want? Don't be vague, be specific. What is your character worried about in a scene? Be specific. When I'm drafting, I actually keep a sticky note on my desk that says BE SPECIFIC in all caps because it's such a helpful reminder. So feel free to steal that and make your own sticky note with BE SPECIFIC in all caps if you want to. Okay, moving on to tip number two. This one comes from episode number 67 that's all about the pros and cons of indie publishing. And in this episode, I shared just that, some of the pros and cons to consider if you're thinking about indie publishing or if you're trying to choose the best publishing path for you. So let's take a listen. Pro number four is that indie publishing can help you get an agent or a publisher. So if you self-publish and do well, agents and publishers might come to you. This could result in a much better deal than you would get as a first-time author with no evidence of sales. So as an example, consider authors like Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. So that started out as a self-published ebook and then went into audio and eventually became a big-time movie. There's also E.L. James, who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. So that was first self-published. 
So was Colleen Hoover's book, Slammed. There's also Bella Andre, Hugh Howie, A.G. Riddle, and many, many others. So long story short, if you want to get a traditional publishing deal, this could be a good way to skip the slush pile and gain experience and grow your audience as an indie author. I had a lot of feedback on this particular episode, and a lot of writers wrote in saying that they didn't even know this was an option or something that happens in real life, but it totally is. It's not something that will work for everyone or for every story, but if you put in the time to write a good story, if you work with the appropriate people to get your book edited and produced, and if you work hard to market your book, then who knows? You could be on this list of self-published authors turned traditionally published authors someday as well. And speaking of traditional publishing and marketing your book, tip number one comes from episode 66 that's all about the pros and cons of traditional publishing. And this clip is all about one of the cons of traditional publishing. So let's take a listen. Con number four is that traditional publishing does not offer significant marketing help. And if you're multitasking at this part of the episode, I want you to pay attention to this one part because it's really important. So a traditional publisher is not going to help you market your book in any kind of significant way unless you get a big advance. And by that, I mean high five or six figures. If a book gets a big advance, the publisher has a big stake in earning that money back and will put more effort into marketing. But for the vast majority of traditional publishing deals, a big marketing budget and plan is not going to be a part of it. This means that no matter how you decide to publish your book, you are going to have to be engaged in selling it and getting it in the hands of readers. These days, readers want authors who are accessible and agents want authors who are actively engaged with readers in an authentic way. This is what agents and publishers mean when they ask writers about their platform. They're basically asking, do you have people interested and waiting to buy this book? Do you have people that you communicate with on a regular basis? And if the answer is yes, that's going to be very appealing to traditional publishers. Because like we just talked about, unless you get one of those big advances, their marketing plan and their marketing budget is probably not going to be very large for your book. So again, this is a really big deal. Traditional publishing does not offer significant marketing help unless you get a big advance. And this is such an important one, and I wanted to end with it on purpose because I didn't want you to miss it. As I covered in episode number 66 and 67, there are pros and cons to each of the main publishing paths. If you're unsure of the right publishing path for you, I highly recommend giving each of those episodes a listen to determine which publishing path falls more in line with your goals as an author. And there you have it, some of the best clips from the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast in 2022. If any of these clips sparked your attention and if you haven't checked out the full episode yet, be sure to go back and take a listen. I'll have all the episodes linked up for you in the show notes. Thank you so much for counting down with me, and I can't wait for you to see what I have in store for you for 2023. So be sure to follow this show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, share it with all your writer friends so that we can all work together next year to get more amazing stories into the world. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week or whenever there's a new episode. I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you, and I get to share all of these writing tips and strategies with you. And I'm super excited to see all the wonderful things that 2023 has in store for us. Have a happy new year and I will see you in 2023. So that's it for today's show. As always, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and showing your support. 
If you want to check out any of the links I mentioned in this episode, you can find them over at savannagilbo.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the show because there's going to be another brand new episode coming out next week. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a quick rating and review. Your ratings and reviews tell iTunes that this is a podcast that's worth listening to. And in turn, that helps this show get in front of more fiction writers just like you. So that's it for today's show. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, happy writing.